I'm going to spend all our time in the epistle to the Ephesians. Now we are very concerned about the teaching of the church which is the body, rightly so. But don't forget, will you, that the body is of no value at all without Christ the head. Whenever you think of the church which is his body, think of the Christ who is the head. Chapter 1, verse 22, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. The next thing I would like you to notice is that when the church is complete and ready for glory, it ceases to be called the body of Christ. Now you may think that's strange. You see, the church has been called the body of Christ ever since it was instituted by the Apostle Paul 1900 years ago. So it's never existed as a complete company. So it was a term used by God to bring before us a company who had many members, all under the direction of one head. And when at last that church is complete, then it enters into its new title, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. Now don't let that be forgotten. Don't keep on thinking of the church which is the body and forget that its goal is to enter into this when every member is there. Fancy belonging to a company that can be so related to Christ that it takes upon the character of the way in which Christ is related to God. The fullness of him who filleth all in all. Then you notice in chapter 2 another reference to this body of Christ. And that he, verse 16, that he might reconcile thee both, as you know the word thee is there, unto God in one body by the cross. So the one body is, as it were, the centre of a reconciliation. And the both were once an enmity. And they constitute the character of the church in the Acts of the Apostles where so many things differed between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer that there was erected a middle wall of partition. That is gone. And we belong to a company in which there's no Jew and there's no Gentile as such. Because it goes on to say in verse 15, for to make himself of the twain, now that word make is to tame. The same word occurs in verse 10, created. It's a creation. There are some people who talk about the one body as though it's a mere evolution from what took place in the Acts of the Apostles. It isn't evolution, it's creation. Something came to an end at the end of the Acts of the Apostles and was left. And the company that we belong to was newly created. And so we have reconciled in one body. And then I turn to chapter 4 which is the beginning of the practical teaching of the epistle to the Ephesians. And the first note that is struck is not to run evangelistic campaigns. We should preach the gospel. We should never hesitate to preach the gospel. We should be concerned about it. And not organize meetings. We should. But the one thing which is insisted upon is that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and then he goes on to tell you what that unity is. It's sevenfold. And the first member is, there is one body. So that you see, anyone who professes to believe this truth, and plays fast and loose with the unity of the Spirit, and has no real conception or place for the one body, and the one hope of the calling, 
the one spirit, the one baptism, the one God and Father, and the one Lord in the centre, he hasn't even started to walk worthy of calling. The word keep doesn't mean keep as a commandment here, it means keep as a sacred trust. This has been entrusted to us. And if we go wandering off and running away to do so-called service and neglect the trust, we shall not be seen serving him who has called us. Now what I feel is, I would like to bring before your attention some of the things that belong to this church, this company. And I'm going back to chapter 1 to ask you to, uh, to notice first of all the way in which he sums up the first great section of blessings in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. I believe most of you are acquainted with the general teaching of the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, but you won't mind me just drawing your attention to the fact that verse 3, with which the epistle opens, because the first two verses are an introduction, verse 3 to verse 14 is the first great section. After that section, the apostle stops teaching them, and he starts praying for them. So I'd like you to notice a word which comes in verse 17. His prayer concentrates upon this thought, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, now our version says, in the knowledge of him. Now it isn't so. He's not giving them one atom more knowledge. He's praying that they may acknowledge, you'll see in the margin, that that is what it is, and that's what is translated many times in Paul's epistles. So I would urge upon you, always accompany your study of this wonderful epistle with this prayer, that I may acknowledge that which I have seen. Well then, these verses 3 to 14, being a complete whole, are divided by the words which we have in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, they are partly repeated in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, and they are repeated again at the end of verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. Now most of you know this, but even if there's only one here, it's worth a moment's pause. You see, that divides this section up into three parts, doesn't it? The first section deals with the will of the Father. There's not a word there about faith, or redemption, or sin. It's just the will of the Father choosing us before the foundation or overthrow of the world. Then, the second section immediately goes right into the redemptive work of Christ, in whom we have redemption, verse 7. And so we, we call that, just for the sake of a title, the will of the Father and the work of the Son. Well, then we have in the two last verses of the section, the seal and the earnest of the Spirit. But as I wanted another word beginning with the letter W, I call that the witness of the Spirit. Well, that may help you. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit. Uh, just one word with regard to verse 7, 8 and 9. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Uh, could you abound in all wisdom and prudence? If you knew the word abound means to fill a cup and let it run over, prodigal, wasting it, letting it run away? Is that wisdom and prudence? Well, he says, it says so here. Oh, yes, but God didn't write Ephesians in a number of verses. 
There's no subdivisions, you go straight on. Supposing the translators have put a stop in the wrong place. Should we read it again? Not alter a single word, but just stop instead of going straight on. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. In all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. See? Redemption overflowing. Teaching, little by little, bit by bit, so that he leads you on step by step. That's only just in passing. Now let's look at this word, verse 6, accepted in the Beloved. This word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament except in the Gospel according to Duke. And it's a word spoken by an angel to the Virgin Mary. This angel came from heaven and said to that woman, Hail thou highly favoured among women. And I cannot believe a woman could be more highly favoured of God than to be the chosen vessel through whom should come into this world the Son of God. Now that is never said of anybody afterwards. Never repeated in the Gospels. Nobody ever mentions it in the Acts of the Apostles. In all Paul's epistles, he's silent about this word till he reaches Ephesians and our calling. And the ones to whom he sends this, he tells them plainly that they were aliens, they were strangers, they were hopeless, they were Christless, they were godless. And he says, you are the only ones that have been picked out by God to have this said of you. You are highly favoured in the beloved. Are we going to quarrel with that? I don't think we are. But let us remember what he has said. Highly favoured. And then he doesn't say in Christ. You notice all the way down this we have in verse 3 heavenly places in Christ. As according as he hath chosen us in him. And so it goes on. In whom we have redemption. But here he pauses to use this title which is not very frequent. More than one passage speaks of Christ as the Beloved, but not so many. Or there are columns of uh, verses where he's spoken of as Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ, or even the other way around, Christ Jesus. They come over and over again, but only once, now and again, Beloved. Look, don't think this is a trifle. This is God coming out and saying something very remarkable. He's already said you're accepted. He's already said, you're highly favoured. But he says, you're highly favoured not only in Christ, not only in the Lord, not in Jesus Christ, but in the Beloved. And then when he gets to Colossians, he's still harping on the same glorious theme. He says, he has translated us out of the authority of darkness and delivered us out of the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And then Ephesians chapter 3 takes you up step by step until he says, Here's something to comprehend the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled right up to all the fullness of God. So while we must stress this wonderful thing, don't let us cheapen it. Like God does, he reserves. And if there's no son, no love. If there's no Christ, no mediator, we'll never know the love of God. So all that's incipient in this. He has made us accepted, highly favoured, in that beloved one in whom all God's love is concentrated. Once you're in him, you're in an ocean of love. Outside of him, we never know it. That's solemn, isn't it? So here we have one of the things we, we do world upon that. That he sums it all up. Now, earlier in verse 4, he says, 
This is all according to the fact that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 of Ephesians. According as he hath chosen us in him before the... We're still saying about this word, I'm suggesting it means the overthrow of the world, not the foundation of the world. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel, chapter 20, verse 15, as one sample only of about 20. 2 Samuel 20, 15. You might like to see this one for yourself, although you've got to take it from me for the time being, that this is the same word, catabello. 2 Samuel 20.15 And they came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmarca. And they cast up a bank against the city, and it stood in the trench, and all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Now that's the the first occurrence of this word catabello in the Old Testament. And every other reference in the Old Testament is the same. Battering down, never building up. Well the next thing is, where is this? If this is the if this is a true translation chosen in him before the overthrow of the world, where does this take place? So we'll look at Genesis one. You know how it starts with starts with that magnificent simplicity? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Will you look at the type that's used in verse two? And look at the word was in the first line. The earth was without form and void. Then look at the word was and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Two different types are used. Now no printer goes out of his way to give himself trouble. And yet they've gone faithfully through this even taking the word was the verb to be and altering the type. So that you ought to know this that in the Hebrew language there is no verb to be doesn't exist. If you want to use the verb to be, well, you just assume it. You never say it. So that's printed in italic letters and darkness upon the face of the deep. I'll leave the word out, you see. Darkness upon the face of the deep. If I'd said it like that, it wouldn't be quite good English, but you know. But when I get it printed in ordinary letters, like in the earth was, that's the Hebrew word to become. And you'll find it in chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. He wasn't a living soul up to that point but he became a living soul. Now that's the word translated was and the earth was without form and void. So we'll alter it. And the earth became without form and void. Well now if it became so what caused it to be so? Well we could guess. But supposing somebody else in the Old Testament has used it. Use these two words without form and void. I think we'd better turn to them before we sort of speculate, don't you? I may have a guess in the back of my mind. I may have a guess that if the world became in this chaotic condition, it was because of a judgment that fell upon it, not creation. But my guess is as good as yours. But supposing Jeremiah, and supposing the prophet Isaiah, I've definitely used these two words. Oh, I say, let me see those because that's going to be a bit more specific. So will you look at Jeremiah chapter 4? He's speaking about the character of the people of Israel at that time in verse 22. They are foolish, they are sophists, they have no understanding. And then he says in verse 23, I beheld the earth, 
And though it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no life. You see? There's the very two words. And he says, at the end of verse 26, about the fierce anger of the Lord. That's not creation. That's judgment. Now turn to Isaiah 34. And these words, without form and void, come in verse 11. But before we look at verse 11, you'll see that we're still in a context of judgment. It says in verse 4, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll. It says in verse 5, My sword shall be bathed in heaven. It says in verse 8, Is the day of the Lord's vengeance. So there's no doubt. Jeremiah and Isaiah are speaking about a day of judgment and vengeance. Now let's look at the words without form and void. But the cormorant, that's verse 11, and the bittern shall possess it. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. You know, these birds are birds of ill omen. They are unclean birds. And it says, he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now, they're the two words without form and void. Now, can you avoid it then? That these two prophets have testified that the words without form and void refer to the chaotic condition the earth was in because judgment had come, both contexts. Jeremiah 4 and Isaiah 34 are in the day of vengeance. Well, now we go back then. We say in Ephesians, this church of the one body was chosen in Christ before Genesis 1 verse 2. What happened then? Maybe a long search. We do know angels fell. We do know Satan fell. We do know that they were once in heavenly places. And there is a possibility that before this judgment fell, God had visualized a company that were going to be redeemed and were to occupy that glorious position in the fullness of time. So you see, if that is the case, we're already lifted away from the earth. We were chosen in him before the overthrow of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, you do know there are two sets of, of expressions in the New Testament. Most of them are from the foundation of the world. Since the foundation of the world. Well now, um, coming to Ephesians 1.4 again, there's one other feature I think we ought to see because it's still impinging upon the accepted in the beloved <coughs> idea. Verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The words before the foundation of the world, occur in only two other places. Here they are. Christ in John 17, before this, his work on Calvary is entered, is giving an account to the Father that sent him, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And he said, thou lovest me before the overthrow of the world. Notice that, loved. Then Peter says that Christ was verily foreordained to be a lamb without blemish, and without spot before the overthrow of the world. All those words are here. The, the words that are said of Christ are said of his people here. They are to be holy, without blemish, and in love. Now, if that doesn't thrill you, what does? That what the Father saw in his beloved Son, he says, I see in those who are united together with him as the one body, and he's the head. Don't forget that, friend. That's what comes out of the fact that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. No other company is that said but this one. Well now that's as far as I can go with regard to verse 6. But I'm not finished yet. No, alright. Uh, 
the next, the next little word I want to take is in chapter 2. Supposing we now do believe and rejoice in the fact that we are accepted, what then? Well, surely the response to being accepted is to have access. You don't shuffle on the doorstep if you know you're fully welcome. Do you? It would be an insult to the people inside if you were dithering about out there. <laughs> you see, God has made us accepted in his beloved Son and he tells us not only we have access in chapter 2, but he says in verse 12 of chapter 3, we have boldness and access with confidence. Think of that. Now where is this access? It's into the very presence of God. Now you take the typical teaching of the Old Testament which is summed up in the epistle to Hebrews. Christ ascended up far above all heavens. He's seated at the right hand in the heavenly holiest of all. And then some people say, well, there's no difference between Hebrews and Ephesians. I've said that. I'll say, yeah, wait a minute. When I read Hebrews, the high priest enters into the holiest of all once a year alone. Alone. That's the teaching. Now, when you think of Peter arguing with God as to whether he should go to a Gentile or not, and when you think of Peter looking at that Gentile who came and said, you know, it's a thing unlawful for the man that is a Jew to even be talking to you, I think poor old Peter would have had a fit to be told that I should ever anticipate the thought that I should go into that holiest of all. Because his high priest went once a year into that dark holiest of all, not without blood and a cloud of incense, and they were so terrified out of their lives they invented a bit more, that high priest never went in without a rope round his ankle in case he should die there. See? That's, that's as far as you get outside of Ephesians. A seated priest at the right hand alone. Now comes along Ephesians and says, you're seated together with him. Potentially. Not actually, but potentially. Where he is, you are. Potentially. Well now, if that's potentially true of me now, and God keeps his word, it's going to be actually true of me then. And you see, we're in a position that nobody can touch. Your place of worship and mine is not a building upon earth. That's only a convenience. Your place of worship and mine is where Christ sits, at the right hand of God. And that's aggravated some of my dear friends, because if I belonged to any place down here, they'd have me out of it long ago. But this is untouchable. This is unmovable. So now we've got access. Now a word about this heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly... Now the word places isn't there. That means to say there's no word place. It's simply entois eparadios in the heavenlies. And it could mean among heavenly beings. It could mean that. There's no argument about it. It could be one or the other. But the next occurrence doesn't allow that alternative. Verse 20. The risen Christ and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So we know one thing. That whatever these heavenly places are or wherever they are, it's at the right hand of God. That's one thing. The next is that heavenly places are far above all principality and power and might and dominion, far above them all. And you remember how the Apostle in Romans 8 
He says, For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any stop. He says, Now, there may be something else outside of my kin, or any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here he says, Far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. He doesn't know their name. But he says, I'm confident of this, that he's far above them all. And then to clinch it, it says in verse 22, and have put all things under his feet. All things under his feet. Well, if he's far above all, and every name, and are all under his feet, he cannot possibly at the same time be seated among them, can he? Look, it's an essential principle of all correct thinking that no thing can be and not be at one and the self same time. You say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Yes, but it's not obvious with people that read the scriptures. They leave their thinking behind when they open the Bible. They're thinking away all the time they're reading the newspaper. Then when they come to the Bible, they all go goofy and think that faith means leave your reason outside. Oh, no, friends, no. Here you cannot possibly endorse the idea that this means among heavenly beings if Christ is seated far above them all. So there we are. We are accepted in the Beloved. We have access into that holy place. We are justified, not only so, we are reckoned without blame before him in love. And heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God is the goal of our hope. So Colossians 3 comes along and says, If you then be risen with Christ, Set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. That's where your hope is to be realised. Well now we come to another aspect of teaching in this epistle to the Ephesians and that is found in chapter 5. It says in verse 25 Husbands, love your wives well, you say, well, is that necessary to write scripture to tell them? Well, you hope that naturally husbands and wives love one another. But here's something extra and added. Husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Oh my, that, that's something, isn't it? That's a standard to live up to. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Chapter 1 says that's God's will that you should be without blemish. Chapter 5 says that's the work of the Son that you shall be without blemish. Now this is to be presented. Here's a presentation. Think of this. You and I are going to be presented. Presented. Now I'll go back just for a moment in my mind to the book of Esther. There was Esther, a Jewess. And her uncle Mordecai, I said to Esther, look, it may be that you've been brought to this very moment to bring salvation to your own people. Queen Vashti had been deposed. And an edict had gone out to gather together the, be- the most beautiful women in the whole realm that they may be presented to the king. He was going to choose one of them. I wonder what heart burnings were going on behind the scenes. And it says for six months they were treated with all sorts of ointments and six months with other treatments to make them as presentable as it's humanly possible. And then comes the test. And whatever 
any one of those women chose to wear. They put it on. And then now look at Esther. There she is. And she said to the one who was her guardian, No, whatever you select, I accept. Friends, that's where we come in. We don't have to pick and choose with regard to what we're going to wear when we're presented at court. We should look at the eagle piggledy nash, shouldn't we? So I'm going now from, from Ephesians to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. Now that word meet is usually the word to be sufficient. That is to say that even though we do not know what requirements will be made to make us accepted in that presence in that day, and it's not to terrify you if you thought you had to. You think of Daniel, the beloved man of God, who stood as he did. When he was visited by an angel from heaven, he collapsed and fell upon his face. And this is not merely angels. Angels are not mentioned in Ephesians. This is principalities and powers, thrones, dominions, the aristocracy of glory. And we're going to be right beyond them, where they can never be. We're going to be presented. It says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us sufficient, all sufficient, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And now you look further down, verse 22. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you, is the presentation again, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now there's another word added here, unreprovable. The word unblameable is the word unblemished. And it's an Old Testament word, you see, you go back over the Septuagint into the Old Testament, and this very word is used to describe the sacrifice. Any animal brought to the Lord for sacrifice must be without blemish. So the Passover lamb was kept from the 10th day of the month to the 14th. And Christ was examined, the same as the Passover. And they had to pronounce over that Passover lamb without blemish. And they pronounced over him, I find no fault with him. Pilate said it, Herod said it, Pilate's wife said it, the dying thief said it, and the centurion who pierced his side said it. They examined the Passover lamb, no blemish, no blemish. A priest in Israel, he may not have been a very nice person, he may not have been a very spiritual person, but he was physically perfect. If any of the sons of Aaron had got marks about their body that I had, he'd be out of it. And the more we see this, we say, and do I come in this? Yes, I do. I'm like Esther. I'm like Esther. I've allowed him to choose. And Esther goes in. And the scepter's held out. And she's the accepted queen. I've got the scroll of Esther at home in the Hebrew. And I've gone through it and I've marked out the acrostics that come because the name of God never comes in the book of Esther. But anyone who reads the Hebrew suddenly comes across Jehovah. The first letters of the word. Then he comes across it again, Jehovah. The last letters of the word. Then he comes across it again, backwards. Backwards. Four times. That's history. God apparently silent. God doing nothing. If you know... He's there all the time, working his plans. It's true for us. God is largely silent. But don't let us think he's forgotten. Or he's vacated his throne. He knows our work, our works and ways and where we are and all we're doing. And we can confide in him just the same, even though we see, see no signs and we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Well now this Colossian says, not only unblameable, that's where we've been getting about these people on this beach, but unreprovable. Now this, this word, in another form, comes several times in the Acts of the Apostles, and it is translated, accuse, to accuse, to accuse. And the last occurrence is in Romans the 8th chapter, and here it is. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's this word. So now you see your position, friends. You're acceptable in the temple of God and you're acquitted in the law court of God. That's our position. What a position we have. That's accepted in the beloved. That gives us access into this holy presence. That gives us confidence that one day we're going to lift up our heads even in glory. Fancy me. I'm going to stand there and I'm not going to think. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to say to myself, ooh, I wonder whether anybody's coming around the corner and says, are you here? And then, <laughs> and then start bringing up something. Bringing up something. You see, the glory of it is, it's all been settled in court. It's, it's all been opened. It's been made manifest. And Christ has loved me. And you know the right hand of God is the place where the accuser stands in the Hebrew court of law? Well, when I stand in that day and look at the right hand of God, there's no accuser there. There's a son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I lift up my head in that day. I lift it up now. You know people have got a wrong idea of worship. As you come up the New Testament, it ceases to be bowing and scraping. God says, stand on your feet, stand up like a man. And when we get at last to our epistles, our epistles don't contain the word worship. I wouldn't say this in some company because they think this was an awful doctrine I was propounding. The only occurrence of worship in the prison epistles is the word in Philippians. We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. But that word worship is just the word service and occurs in chapter 2 of Philippians in this figure. Paul points to Timothy and he says, he has served with me like a son, with a father. That's the way I worship my God. I have no rigmarole, no ceremonies, no bowing and scraping. He's made me a son and I serve with the father. I don't think there's anything richer or more wonderful. But then that, that's no place for priests. That's no place for ceremonies. That's no place for men dressing up with lace and I don't know what and going through all their genuflections and things that are going to make up religion. That's, that was all right in the days of type and shadow. But not for me. I trust not for you. You worship God now by standing where he's placed you. He's made you one of his firstborn. And you already look up into his face and say, Have our Father. Even the seraphim veil their faces. Veil their faces. But you know what it's written of God's people who are redeemed? We all with unveiled face beholding even as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are transfigured with unveiled face. So, don't let us think that the worship of God is this long, drawn-out ceremonial or ritual. He gave that until the time of Reformation. And when Christ came, the shadows flee away and now we're in the blessed light of all the reality. Well, now we have this presentation once more in another aspect, in chapter Colossians chapter 1. He's speaking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 27, whom we preach, warning every man. Now, warning always means some element of danger about. 
and teaching every man in all wisdom. What for, Paul? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. You're going to present. Well, I thought we were presented perfect. Oh, he says, you're wrong. I haven't said the word perfect in verse 22. I never said the word perfect when I wrote Ephesians 1. Oh, but perfect must... No, 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 you're wrong. Our idea of perfect is going better and better and better and better. But what about Christ? We're told that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, that holy thing that should be born of thee without sin, and yet it says he was made perfect by the things which he suffered. Well, how can he be made perfect? Now, here we have a word that we do well to ponder. But we know it well enough. At least, we know the word that has been derived from it. The word is teleos. Perfect. Tele means distance. I phone, I speak at a distance. Scope, I see at a distance. Television, it brings the distance to me. So, perfect doesn't mean getting better and better and better. It means finishing the course. And you know those words were said on the cross when Christ said, it is finished. He said this word, tele. When the Apostle Paul wrote his last epistle, he said, I have finished my course. He said the word, tele. So now, says Paul, I can't make you without blemish. But he said, don't forget that you have a response to this truth is that where we are failing a bit, friends? Are we so enamoured of the doctrine only that we forget that this epistle says, walk worthy? Put your life into the scales on one side and the glorious calling on the other and see if they balance a bit. They may never do, but it's a good thing to attempt it. So he says, you are already completely accepted in Christ. I'm not touching that. But he said, you know, some of you people... If you, if you hadn't told me so, I wouldn't have believed it. Now, that's bad, isn't it? Of course, we are human. And even I sometimes say to the wife, well, I said, that shows I'm not quite already perfect. But then she comes back and she says, well, there's no need to do that to prove that to me. <laughs> see? You see? But she's not touching my acceptance in the beloved with all my faults. She knows that's unassailable. Blessed be God. Unassailable. But whether I'm living up to it, morning, noon and night, that's another question. That's for you as well. So said the Apostle. Always said, don't you see? If you are in this blessed position by grace, won't you see, don't you see, that it's surely the only response that's reasonable, that you should seek to walk in harmony with it, even though you never manage it. The very seeking of it will be well pleasing to God. Now, if you want to get the balance of the structure of Colossians, I'm not going to sketch it all out for you, but here it comes, chapter 4. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you, always labouring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Look at chapter 2. Verse 9 and 10. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. So they were already complete. And this man's praying that they might be complete. They were already perfect, in the sense of accepted, and Paul's praying that they might be perfect. We're on two different grounds, you see. And that's where the epistle to the Philippians comes in. Ephesians gives us our position in Christ. We can neither win it nor lose it. It's a gift of God. 
Then Philippians comes along and says, work out that salvation which God has worked in. And he gives you the figure of running a race and winning a prize. Well, now you can lose a prize, but you can't lose a gift. You can win a prize, but you can't win a gift. So when Paul says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I run, he's already sure of his acceptance, but he wants to do that little well-pleasing thing to the Lord, just to press on and receive his well done. And you know, if any of you are parents, and your child comes home from school, having won a prize, well there's three prizes, there's father's got a prize, there's mother's got a prize, and the youngster's got one. Well, if I ever get any approximation to a prize, that's what it's going to be. Not something that I'm going to get, but all for just to be able to say to him, Lord, I lay to thy feet. Just a little tiny expression of love. He puts it another way in another epistle. He says, adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Now, you may know the name Ruskin, but he's that number now. But he said, Ornament, he was an art teacher particularly, ornament was the added love of the workman. I don't know whether that exists today. I mean, when you've got things going boomp, 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 I've seen them, they're nodding away, they're telling me that they're, they're pumping oil, well, they're only machines, but I've seen men whose jobs look like that, that's all they're doing all day long. But you can't talk about added love of a workman there. But when you go into a museum and you see a bit that was designed by a man, carried out by a man, and then he couldn't, he couldn't leave it till he put his bit of any love on it. Now, a good bit of the ornament today is stamped on the four corners to, so you don't see the bad workmanship. You don't see how it's all stuck together. That's, that's, that's an abomination. But God says to you and me, you can't invent salvation. You can't invent the doctrine. That's my part. But I'm, I'm giving you the little opportunity to put a little bit of added love to it. Adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. I'll give you another illustration. Years ago when we were living in the little blessed expectation of a tiny baby coming into our home, there was Mrs. Welsh sitting making these little white clothings, you know, and she handed over me, she says, here, put a little bit on the bib, on the front. So I just, with a pencil, I did a little bit that she did in white embroidery. Now that didn't make any value to that, the baby dribbled all over it just the same. And, and in fact, the baby didn't know a word about it. But don't you enter into that? Don't you, did you think it was sheer waste of my time and hers? Surely not. That's a little bit of added love. No use. Now God accepts that. Again, in Philippians, when Paul was speaking of his own service, he said, Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. Now that word offered, coming over the Septuagint into the Old Testament, is the drink offering. It didn't make the sacrifice any, any more potent. That sacrifice was the symbol of, of the forgiveness of sins, whatever you did. But the offerer was permitted to pour out a drink offering. Maybe wine. Maybe something like And Paul said, I cannot save you. I wasn't crucified for you. I can't redeem you. But if I give my whole life for the service of this truth, it's only pouring out a glass of wine over an already accepted sacrifice, but God permitted it. So you see, we first of all dwell upon our acceptance in the Beloved, and then let us go on our knees and say, but Lord, am I acceptable in myself? In the one case, 
absolute assurance. In the other case, he said, I've got me doubts. And if you've got any doubts, ask the person who has to live with you. And sometimes it'll be very salutary.